In a moment, Matthew Palomari back with us. We're going to be talking with him about shamanic exploring next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Matthew Palomari back with us, author, editor, shamanic explorer. He is an award-winning writer, musician, sound healer, who's been studying shamanism all of his life. He incorporates shamanic practices into his daily life as well as into his writing and teaching. He has 17 books in print that cover several genres. Matt has spent extended time in the jungles, mountains, deserts of North, Central, and South America, pursuing his studies of shamanism and ancient cultures. And through his research into both the written word and ancient beliefs of shamanism, he has uncovered the heart of what a story really is and integrated it into the core of dramatic concepts that also have been their basis in shamanism. Matthew, welcome back. How have you been? I've been doing great, George. Thank you so much for having me back. What are you writing on these days? You don't stop. No, I'm a, I, I like to tell people uh, I introduce myself as a perspiring writer, and uh, the books just keep coming. Right now I'm just off of the uh, – we just did the 50th anniversary of the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, but that's where I met Ray Bradbury, and Ray kicked it off for 37 years. So I'm I'm writing high on that, and I have my 19th book just came out, and my 20th is right behind it. My gosh, you're ahead of me. Uh-huh. <laughs> what's the uh, what's the 20th book that's coming out? So the 20th that's coming out is called I Am Consciousness Incarnate. I like that. And I got deep into consciousness research, scientific methods, philosophical, and then I get into plant consciousness and animal consciousness and what is consciousness and uh, a bit of the metaphysical, a lot of the science. And it was one of those ones that, that wrote itself. The best ones write themselves. They do. They just flow. And uh, this one just came to me uh, around Christmas time. And next thing you know, there I was going crazy writing it. How did you get involved in all this, man? Well, you know, I've always been fascinated with, with the written word and communicating. And when I was younger, my, my best subjects in high school and grammar school were always English. In fact, when I graduated high school, I got a C- in woodworking, but I got a B-plus in English. So I've always loved that. And then when I got involved with uh, researching shamanism and visionary experience and all of those things, I wanted to be able to take experiences that are beyond logic and try to articulate them in a way so people can get a sense of an experience that goes beyond logic, if that makes any sense. It does, indeed. And um, it's tied in deeply with storytelling, and storytelling is deeply tied in with uh, archetypes. And, you know, archetypes are the core of of our psyche and our, our collective psyche. So it's drawn me along with a, a life of its own, and when the books keep coming like this, I can't help but kind of kind of channel them. Really, they, they they really do come through on their own. What does shamanism mean? To you? So shamanism is the very first the very first time anybody looked up and said, "What is all this? And what am I here for? And what am I?" Is the basis of shamanism, and every single religion in the world comes from shamanism. It's the most prehistoric belief system that we know of. It's the oldest form of psychotherapy. Shamans were the first. Uh, doctors, psychologists, performing artists, musicians, uh, uh, storytellers. Um, It goes back to the roots. In every single religion in the world, you can look within and you'll find the roots of shamanism that are within them. One of the things that fascinated me, among others, with shamanism in particular, is uh, the myth of the flood. And, you know, in Christianity, Noah's Ark, there are remote jungle tribes in South America who didn't know anything of Western culture, and they have their own myths of the flood. And the myth of the flood is a universal archetype that that goes, you know, cross-culturally across the world. So the universality of it has always really drawn me in and fascinated me. Something must have happened when that happens. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't matter. The same things have meaning, whether it's Korean shamanism or Siberian shamanism or South American shamanism. The the same things have the same meaning. And uh, that gets deeply, as I mentioned, that gets deeply into the archetypes, which have deeper conceptual uh, meaning to us, both individually and, you know, collectively. Matthew, back a couple of years ago, you wrote a book called Death, A Love Story. Tell us about that title. Yeah, thank you. Um, There's an interest, a bunch of interesting stories around it, but I was writing it. It came to me to be written before the pandemic hit, and I was actually in the process of publishing it when the pandemic hit. And in essence, it's it's, uh, the first person voice of death. 
and um, it, uh, it it gets into the whole our attitudes and um, uh, culture and history of death. And um, I decided to do it in, in first person because death is much misunderstood. So if you don't mind, I can read just a short opening here. Yeah, we've got some time. Good, thank you. So it says, uh, please allow me to introduce myself. And then it goes in. Hi, I'm your death, and I'm here for you. No, wait, don't go. Aside from the fact that you can't get away, I'm not here for you that way, at least not now. Although, to be honest with you, we do have a date, and I am always with you, whether you acknowledge me or not. Want to know when I'm coming in that way? Sorry, I can't tell you. It's part of the great mystery. You know, that place where you came from and where you are going. If you want to know the truth, I'm not your death. But you are mine. Now, don't freak out on me. It's only a visit. I want to spend some quality time with you before the big event. And seeing as you took the time to stop by and I have you as a captive audience, I thought it would be nice to have a little visit and get acquainted. And then it goes on from there and it gets into the history of death, cultures, uh, traditions, funerary rites, um, the fact that death is everywhere, death in nature, um, you know, plants grow, the leaves die, we all live and die and all that. And I get very deep into it, but I do it all from first person. So the uh, the response has been really powerful from people. I had a guest on by last week who is an avowed atheist. He's a skeptic about everything. He was a pretty good guest, but he's an avowed atheist, doesn't believe in God. Uh-huh. What do you tell people that you come across who just don't believe? That's a that's a great question. Um, I have a soft spot for atheists, I'll tell you that. And um, so according according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the literal definition of atheist is a person who doesn't believe in the existence of a god or any god. And the vast majority of United States atheists fit this description, yet one in five say they do believe in some kind of a higher power. None of the atheists surveyed say they believe in God as described in the Bible. How do these attitudes affect how they look at death? Well, for me, and for death, I should, let's just say it's the voice of death talking here, um, death says that they've acknowledged the fact that they are God because they have made the ultimate judgment. Whether a, a God exists or not, they have made the call. So that means they're admitting that they're God. Because mm. if they cease to exist, if, if, if someone is an atheist and they suddenly cease to exist, then reality doesn't exist and nothing exists and there, there's nothingness. So they are the ones that make that ultimate sort of uh, subjective call. And um, the thing is, that most atheists I know probably are ultimately agnostics because um, if suddenly God appeared before them somehow, they would be instant believers. Who wouldn't if that something like that ever really did happen? But the fact that they have made the call and, and really the fact that they not going to listen to what somebody else tells them. They take responsibility for themselves. And um, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for it, but I have a, a number of atheist friends. And when I tell them, you just admitted you're God, they're like, what? <laughs> well, you did because you just made the ultimate call, you know, and you're taking responsibility for it, too. So um, how many atheists do you think see the light and then believe in God? I think probably more than than people would care to admit. I mean, the fact of the matter is they take responsibility. A lot of people don't want to take responsibility. If they get caught up in organized religions and things, they want to go to the to the priest, to the guru or whatever, so they don't have to deal with themselves. But the atheists take responsibility for themselves. And there has to be something for them. I mean, I can't speak for any of them personally, but the fact that they are owning their subject subjectivity and their subjective experience and they're fully embracing it, there's a lot to be said for that because a lot of people are, are very, very fearful of that. And, and and even if they if they go, okay, I don't believe in anything, and when I'm gone, I cease to exist, God love them. Oh, <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> but yeah. God love them for accepting that. They're taking responsibility. What is it like, do you think, Matthew, right before one dies, right before they die? What, what do they go? I have a wild story to tell you. Can you indulge me for a few minutes? Uh, we're going to hit a break, so we'll do it after the break. Yeah, i got a great story to tell you. Matthew's website is his name linked up at coasttocoastam.com. And where do people get your 18-plus book? They're all on Amazon. They're e-books. They're tree books. And now we're calling them speak books. I'm getting my, my audio books are getting built up. And I also have uh, mysticinkpublishing.com, M-Y-S-T-I-C-I-N-K-P-U-B-L-I-S-H-I-N-G.com. 
When you were with me uh, last year, we were talking about the holographic cosmic man. Remember that one? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. Another one of your classics. That's doing very well, too. And, uh, do you get any help from above when you write these books? You know, it's all bigger than me. I mean, the, the, the whole all we are is dust in the wind. Some of the things I've experienced now deep in the jungle doing these shamanic plant diets, I've had the realization that it is all much bigger than me. It sure is. Matthew, stay with us. We're going to take a break. We'll come back and talk about death. Hey, and welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with Matthew Palomari. Matthew, you were going to talk about a story about what's it like right before one dies. Go ahead. Yeah, this is wild. So um, back in the late 90s, I went to these entheobotany seminars in the Maya ruins of Bushmal in Palenque, and a number of people were there, Terrence McKenna and a bunch of other people. And a friend of mine, uh, Jacques Olivier, lives up on Orcas Island now, found out about this substance called 5-MeO-DMT. It's 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine. It's, it's highly psychoactive, and uh, you hear a lot these days about people smoking toad venom, and it's the primary component in that. Toad venom? Toad venom, yeah. The Bufo alvaris, the Sonoran desert toad. People, they, they dry the venom, and then they smoke it. And it, it, uh, it blows your ego away. It, it's, it can be very transformative. It's a very powerful experience. Back then, nobody really knew what it was except a few people, and we were getting it from a lab in China. And we smoked it and had a life-changing experience. So he and I have always had this funny, weird sort of death connection. So when I was finishing this book, the death book, right when COVID was hitting, he was up playing on a stage up at Orcas Island at the Imagine Festival, and it was Friday the 13th. It was a full moon. He was in this big stage, and there was a heart above him. Classic setting, right? Yeah, and he's playing a song, and I never get the words right, but he's playing a song by David Byrne called Lazy, and he's playing it, and he's singing on a ukulele, and, he, and it goes something like, oh, I'm lazy as a lover. I'm lazy when I work. I'm lazy, you know. I'm wicked and I'm lazy. And he gets to the line and he goes, I'm feeling so lazy, I think I'm going to stop. And right when he said that, he literally dropped dead on stage. Oh, my God. You're kidding. No, he dropped dead. A nurse was in the audience. She jumped up. She broke two of his ribs trying to resuscitate him. She worked on him for five, six minutes. I don't know. The lifelike guys came in and... They hit him with the paddles six times, and they brought him back. Jeez. And they, they rushed him off um, with the life flight. He got a triple bypass. He goes by Paloca Lele, and he lives up there on Orcas Island. And so, you know. He's still click, clicking along. Huh? All his movies. Yeah, I, so I, what I did is, is I went up to Orcas, and I helped him. I edited and published the book about that experience. It's called Nature Loves Courage, which is something that Terrence McKenna used to say all the time. But when I got to sit with him and I said, buddy, I got to know this, that, that 5 MEO experience that we had, I always thought that was a dress rehearsal for death. Was it? And he looked at me and he said, yes, it was. Wow. So though he was gone and clinically dead for it could have been 10, 12 minutes, I don't know how long it was, he said he was aware. I had a friend of mine, Matthew, who I think he died while sending me a text. Yeah? Because a couple texts came in and made sense. A third one came in, it didn't make sense. Mm. A fourth one came in, it was all gobbledygook, and mm. then nobody heard from him. And then the next day we had a wellness check with the police, and they found him in bed. Wow. Isn't that wild? Strange. Yeah, it really is strange. Funny things happen, like, like I won't get into all the details, but when my mom died, her stereo suddenly turned on really loud with Frank Sinatra. I love that. Right? And and she loved Frank Sinatra. She had worked with him years ago. And and, and it seems like this whole electronic thing and the boundaries between the world, so to speak, mm -hmm. it's pretty strange. Um, you know, to me, it makes life more dreamlike in many respects and more magical. And uh, so one of the things that inspired me to write this book is I, I'm not afraid to die. I'm ready. I'm not in any hurry. Yeah, we're in no rush. No rush. <laughs> but part of me is looking forward to it, right? Because all, all the experiences I've had in the jungle with all these plant diets for all these years, I've been through everything imaginable and unimaginable. If there's something new, I'm waiting for it. But I mean, I've been at it, you know, for like 25 years with that. If you're going to go, though, wouldn't you want to go in your sleep? I think so, yeah. 
That's the best way to go. Yeah, I want. I would like to stay vital and healthy all the way up until it's time to go, and then bang, just go. And then just go. You know, I, I don't, don't want to stay in a hospital for plan. six months or anything like that. Yeah, I've seen too many people go on the installment plan. Uh, Charles Schultz, who was a friend of mine, um, he died in his sleep like that. The peanuts, Charles Schultz? Yes, sir. He he was uh, he was a good friend. He was a big part of the Santa Barbara Writers Conference for for many years. Ray Liotta, the actor, just done sleep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Same kind of thing. I mean, well, you know. Too, George, the older we get, the more it happens, right? That's true. We're, we're going to be up to bat sooner or later. I guess when you die in your sleep, what happens? You just have a heart attack in your sleep or something? That's what happened with, uh, we call them Charles Schultz, we call them Sparky. Uh, that's what happened with Sparky. And his son, Monty, now owns the Writers' Conference, and he's, he's keeping it going, keeping the tradition going. But to go just like that, right, you, you probably don't even know what hit you. Suddenly you're off wherever you end up going. Assuming there's an afterlife, right? Exactly. You'll, you'll know that you died, but it'll be puzzling to you to see, yeah. right? A little confusing. Yeah, but um, I like to think, of course, I'm a, uh, a wee bit biased here. But all the visionary experiences that I've had in the jungle and all the psychological things I've been through all these years, I do feel very prepared for whatever's going to come. Even if it were to, to cease to exist, um, you have to accept it no matter what. You know, it's it, it's always there. And, you know, there's that old saying that you start, that the moment you're born, you start to die, right? Exactly. Oh. In June of this year, you wrote a book called The Thinning Veil. Tell us about that. Yeah. It's my, my third short story collection. Thank you for asking. And um, my very first short story collection is the one that Ray Bradbury gave me the blurb for. And my fans have been begging me for more fiction because I've been writing so much nonfiction lately. So I worked really hard and I came up with 13 uh, twisted tales, short stories. Um, some of them are uh, science fiction, science fiction horror. I got a nice uh, haunted castle, Scottish uh, haunted castle story in there. Um, genetic manipulation, um, all kinds of weird little things. I did 13 of them, and I dedicated one of them to Ray Bradbury. It was Ray Bradbury versus the aliens, wasn't yes, it? Yes, sir. Yeah, you're on it. Thank you. Yes. Um, I had been asked, Ray would have been 100 a few years ago, and I was asked to write a story having to do with his life. And there was um, the story, uh, Boys Boys Grow Giant Mushrooms in Your Basement. It was on the old Alfred Hitchcock show. It was on the old Ray Bradbury Theater. Yeah. It was about aliens taking over the world. So I wrote a first-person story about a Ray Bradbury fan going back to Waukegan, where he was born, and runs across the mushrooms again. And in, in the story, the aliens are taking over by making everybody eat the mushrooms, and they're getting possessed by the aliens. So I, I did a first-person with Ray Bradbury um, with the mushrooms, and I had a lot of fun writing it. Did I ever tell you my Ray Bradbury story? I don't know. I know we have him in common. We used to put out a newsletter called the After Dark Newsletter. Uh -huh. And I wrote a story about Ray Bradbury's Twilight Zone script he wrote called I Sing the Body Electric. Oh, yeah. It was about uh, a family who lost their mother, mm -hmm. two kids, mother, little boy, little girl, and the, and the mother died. And they were in tremendous mourning, as they should be. And he went to the robot store and bought a nanny robot who raised the kids. They became adults. And she went on to a different family to do it all over again. But it was called I Sing the Body Electric. And I, I, ju I just loved that show. Oh, yeah. So I wrote a story about it in our newsletter. It somehow got to Ray Bradbury. Oh. He sent me a letter, which I still have on my bulletin board in my office here, mm -hmm. that just says, reading the story you wrote about me just delighted me to know it. Thank you, uh, Ray Bradbury. That's sweet. It's a classic. Yeah. Yeah, I got I got my picture and my postcard that he sent me. Um, he was one of the best. Man, he was so... It was such an honor to be with him. He used to come to the conference, and after he would speak, he would go to the back of the restaurant, and I would get invited back there with, like, maybe three other people, and he would tell stories of writing Moby Dick with John Huston. Wow. And he would go into the John Huston voice, well, Ray, you know, and he would just do the whole thing. What do you think made him so clever? I have. A, I told this to a friend, and they thought I was a little crazy, but, you know, we were talking about visionary experience and drugs and this and that, and I said, Ray Bradbury is the kind of guy who would never, ever need to take any drug ever, ever, because I think he always had that sort of three-year-old childlike wonder. Yep. And it's it's just a beautiful thing. He always was was had that that questioning and what if. And he was very much playful, um, like a three-year-old. And I think that's just the sweetest thing. And, and what an inspiration! And he used to get up there kicking off the conference, and he would just go on about the hell with the screenplays and the hell with the novels. Just write for the love of it. And he would just really get into this 
passion, you know. And um, it was everybody would want to be there and make sure they got race opening night keynoter because he was so full of just passion, you know. What a blessing he was. Where was he born? Um, he was born um, in Waukegan, or he lived in Waukegan, Illinois, um, until he was something like eight or something like that. And then the family moved to L.A. And he lived in Venice Beach, and he was writing, eking out a living, writing um, for, the, for the pulp magazines, you know, like Weird yeah. Tales. He was 91 when he died. Yeah, yeah. And I saw him just before he died, and I, and I gave him a copy of my memoir. And I just said, Ray, I'm not asking you for a blurb or anything. I just wanted to give to it this. You've been so great to me. And, and he, he put it, he held it, and he looked at it, and he looked up at me, and looked back down at it, and then he, he held it to his heart. And um, that was the last time I saw him. How many tw Alfred Hitchcock shows did he write? Yeah, he did. He did about. He did a lot of those. Yeah, he did. He did. He did probably three or four Twilight Zones. He probably did maybe half a dozen of the Hitchcock ones. And then uh, in the '80s, when they had Ray Bradbury Theater, he got to redo a lot of them. Would you say Fahrenheit four one four five one was his biggest work? It was his biggest and most well known. But um, when he when he first was started out, he took a bus for three days to New York to try to get a book published way back. And he spent the whole week knocking on publishers' doors, and nothing happened. And he was staying at the YMCA. And finally, on Friday afternoon, the editor said, well, Ray, what about those Mars stories? You know, you wrote, why don't you do something with those? And Martian, so he threw Martian together Chronicles. over the weekend, he threw together the Martian Chronicles, brought that in, and they accepted it. And then from then on, he was kind of on his way. That was but I, I think, yeah, Fahrenheit 451 is probably his most famous one. But, you know, something wicked this way comes. The illustrated man. I mean, um, how, did, how, how did you come up with your 13 Twisted Tales for Thinning Veil book? They were not easy, I got to tell you. How'd you find them? Well, I scan the newspapers all the time. So, like, uh, there's one story um, I read about. They put a pig's heart into a guy. Because it's just like a human heart. For real? For real. And he lived for about a month, and then he died. Oh. So I had a story about a guy who was a, a freak about bacon. He was really into his bacon, and he ends up in the hospital because he doesn't take care of himself. He eats terribly, and he ends up getting a pig's heart, and he starts turning into a pig. I won't get into all the details, but I got it from what I read in the news. I have another story about genetically engineered babies that are perfect. Uh, call that one fetal fantasies. Um, and then I wanted to, I read some really, really old uh, short stories from like the turn of the century. So I wrote one in that style. Um, but short stories in many respects are harder than a novel because you got to get it all done. You got to come up with the idea and you got to wrap it all up and do it, you know, and then you got to come up with a new idea. Whereas when a novel gets going, it has a life of its own. It just starts to build. But the stories, you got to keep coming up with new ones. We're going to take calls with you, Matthew, next hour about yes, death and dying and about other incredible stories. The phone lines are now open, folks. If you want to make the call, we'll get you on hold and get you ready for next hour. Since you've been doing this, which has been a number of of years, what has been your most satisfying moment? Probably when they they took my historical novel, Land Without Evil. It was about first contact between the Jesuits and the Indians in South America. It was told from the Indians' point of view, and it was made into a wonderful stage show. We did eight shows in Austin, Texas. We had aerialists and video projection and feathers and costumes and music and beautiful women dancing and all of that. And we sold out the opening night and the two closing nights. And then uh, PBS did a show about the making of the show, and that show about the making of the show got an Emmy nomination. So to be able to sit there in the front row and do eight performances of people performing my words and my, you know, what I wrote was the best in the world ever. Good for you. Thank you. Good for you. And you keep at it, too. You just... I, I'm obsessed. I'm, obsessed. I'm a perspiring writer, George. Can't help myself. Keep going and you doing what you're doing. Thank We're going to take a short break and come back with phone calls with Matthew Palomari in just a moment on Coast to Coast. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with Matthew Palomari. We're going to take your calls this hour. Matthew, most of your books are seated in incredibly deep spiritual 
sounding feelings. Would you agree? Yes, sir. I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very inspired, and um, from the experiences I've had, primarily in the jungle, it totally changed my perspective on life. I don't know if you remember you and I talked some back. Uh, we're both from Massachusetts, and I grew up in Dorchester in Boston. Tough neighborhood. Mom was from Fitchburg. Yeah. And so, you know, I grew up with a lot of violence, um, a lot of just life was not easy. It was, uh, you know, my father was in prison. A lot of my buddies' dads were in prison. A lot of my buddies were in prison. Jeez. So to kind of overcome all that and get a shift in perspective that opened my eyes to things, um, I can be really thankful for the work I've done in, in shamanism and with the plants has changed me. And, and now I really do feel inspired where the books are writing themselves. And it seems like the more far out they get, that I get, the, the better they do. So I, I had a uh, personal coach for some years, and she said to me, tell your secrets. Write, write your secrets and speak your truth. So that's what I really try to do uh, in the best way that I can. It's in, I think it's really important, especially in this day and age for younger people in, in terms of all the stuff that goes on with, with drugs, good and bad, yeah. and you know psychedelics and legalization and therapy. All of that has been shifting for some time now, and I think it's really important for young people to have their eyes wide open. Matthew, what do you think of the state of the planet? I think we're in the midst of a huge transformation. Um, a lot of what we're doing now is not sustainable. Uh, they say is the world going to end. Well, the world's not going to end. We might end ourselves, but the world's going to continue going on for a long time. Long time. Yeah. And I think that in in the end, uh, the universe always seeks balance, always tries to come back to center one way or the other. You know, we messed up the environment. Now we have wildfires and then we have floods, you know, and all these things because we've polluted the environment so badly. Shamanism is all about balance in nature. And, and when I'm in the jungle doing these shamanic plant diets, I really, you, you really become the jungle from the inside out. And you see how everything works together. Every little bug has its place. Every little thing in the, in the food chain of the balance of how everything works with each other. It's just a huge symphony. And, um, you know, modern society, we're totally out of touch with that. We're, we're, we have our faces all stuck in our computers and our cell phones, right? And we're semi-oblivious to what's going on around us. But uh, I, th I think nature's always going to win in the end. I think so, too. Let's go to Joe in the Bronx in New York to get us started. Hey, Joseph. George, how are you? Okay, getting the week good, rolling. Good. Happy Fourth of July. It's coming up. Um, yes, it's coming up, definitely. Um, yeah, Matthew, I'd like to ask, um, what is the weirdest setting for one of your short stories? And also question number two, what do you think of sci-fi writers like Philip K. Dick, Ursula Le Guin, and Isaac Asimov? For example, The Adjustment Bureau, Philip K. Dick. I think that was a great move. There are some of my favorites. Uh, modern day to now, so to speak, uh, science fiction writer David Brin is a very good friend of mine, and he's been an inspiration. I like to get into the to the minds of people. Um, like I'm always observing homeless people, and you wonder, some of them are so out of their gourd, and you wonder, what is it like for them? What's going on inside their head? How do they really see the world? They don't see it the same. So for the most part, the monsters that I've written about have all been human. The human, the human monsters, right? Yeah, and and the internal, you know, you you look at things that go on, the most horrible things you can think of. You know, there was Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal Lecter, and you think to yourself, we're all human. And so there but for the grace of God, all of those horrific things that we see, well, every single one of us is capable of that. And that's one of the scariest things in the world. I, I, I sometimes I like to tell people you don't want to know what goes on inside of my head because you would run. You'd be you'd get the life scared out of you with, with, you know, what goes on. And I like to let my mind go in order to explore different realities and different experiences from people. You think one day with artificial intelligence, Matthew, they're going to be able to hook your brain up, let's say, to a screen. All of a sudden, it'll paint pictures of whatever you're thinking about. To some degree, I, I think people people don't know the real deeper realities of artificial intelligence, and I think there's a, a fair amount of hype to it. I can say that because I have an extensive background in technology uh, all the way back from the 70s when I was in the Air Force working on spy planes and all that. Yeah. And there are brain interfaces that are going on right now, and there are things that are being done where they can stimulate a certain part of the brain in order to stop convulsions and things like that. And they're working on these connections, but I think it can only go so far because for me, all of the technology, including the Internet, is really just a huge mirror of us. It's like another tool. I uh, I like to call the Internet the narcissistic hall of mirrors. Huh. 
you know. You're close. Yeah. So, you know, the computer messed up. Well, humans messed up. And then we make computers, and when they make their errors, they're because of we're interfacing with them. You know, nothing is perfect. And I don't think no matter what and how many things you can invent, I don't think you can beat the brilliance of nature and the natural world and, and, and you know, the overall cosmos of all of it. Let's go to Catherine in British Columbia, Canada. Hey, Kath, go ahead. Good evening, you guys. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Matthew, I really enjoyed your reading there when you did the thing on death. Thank you. And You're welcome. And I, I just want to know if you've ever thought of doing one on living, like um, how wonderful your life would be and how, how you were going to be a great writer and all that. Thank you. Well, I always like to, as far as I will go to say is that um, I'm a legend in my own mind. That's as far as I'll go. But um, I always like to make the joke that maybe I'll be the, the greatest writer of the 21st century 10,000 years from now. But the imagination is a wonderful thing. And that's one of the things I was really inspired by with Ray Bradbury um, is the way his imagination could go and how much he encouraged the importance of it. And Albert Einstein was big on imagination, too. And, and everything that we have in today's world, all the magic of technology and all that, had to start with somebody thinking about it to begin with. One of my favorite Einstein quotes, somebody asked him about World War III and what it would be like. And he said, I have no idea. But I'll tell you this, World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. I love it. <laughs> so true, you know what? Yes. Let's go to James in Virginia. Welcome to the program. Hey, James. Hi, George and Matthew. Hi there. Hey, um, hey James. I, I, my mother passed away three times and uh, came back uh, one day, uh, all three times after her heart stopped. And I kept asking Jesus that. I kept telling her to blink if it's uh, okay, come back if Jesus says it's all right. And all three times she came back. But I, I'm really going to change my subject just slightly because since we're into this, uh, you know, we're, we're into our um, Declaration of Independence anniversary and all that, mm -hmm. I just wanted to point out, George and uh, Matthew, uh, George, uh, George mentioned there's strange things happening on the planet. Well, August 21, 2017, before the last election, the USA only eclipsed. It only went through the continent of America, and that's all. And the only time it ever did that before was in the year 1776. Mm, that's right. It's supposed to do it one more time. supposed to do it one more time in 2024, but it's going to cross from the south to the north. It's going to go through the, the continent. So, But the, the most important thing is on September 21, just a month later, in a couple of days or so, um, 2017, for the last like the Revelation 12, the celestial event took place. The woman, the child, and the dragon. It's a celestial event involving Virgo, Jupiter, and and the snake uh, constellation. And that took place. That's a scientific, not astrology. That's a, as astronomy. Took place on that date. And and it, and a, the baby G it was supposed to be symbolic. Jupiter of a baby. Uh, I believe it's supposed to be Jesus goes through the womb of a woman for nine and a half months before it, before it finally comes out of Virgo, out of her lower abdomen. And that's the one. Revelation 12, where there was a great war in heaven, and one third of the angels were cast down with Satan down to the earth. And again, you know, that's um, how many angels is that? Well, in Revelation 5, we don't know how many were cast down, but we know in Revelation 5, John saw 10,000 times at times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels. So it was over 100 million angels in Revelation 5 he saw. So if it was anywhere near that pool of angels, and they were cast down and turned into apparently like Satan followers, you know, demon type, mm. and they were cast down, uh, that would have been like 33 million angels if that was bad angels, you know, they were doing. That's a lot of bad angels to be sure. Matthew, do you ever get spiritual like this? In my own way, to me, I, I said this before, but the difference between shamanism and organized religion, so to speak, is organized religion is based on the words of prophets. So Jesus went in the desert and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Muhammad sat in the cave. Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree. And then somebody wrote about their experiences in their revelation. And sometimes I upset Christians when I tell them, but I will say that if you go into the desert and you fast for 40 days and 40 nights, I guarantee you, you'll be talking to God too. And so basically what shamanism says is go have your own experience. And that to me is the difference between spirituality, direct experience, as opposed to what somebody tells you to believe. How did these ancient shamans know what they were doing? I think they were tapped in. Um, there's this whole thing about how we've evolved through the dark ages and back to the light ages of, over time. Uh, there's an expression, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but well, we've evolved through more enlightened times and darker times back and forth. And I think that civilization has probably gone through changes like this many times over. I remember you and I talked last time, we talked a bit about Graham Hancock's work. Yeah. 
Um, we're not we're not the smartest kids on the block. I do not believe we're the first at all. And so I think that there's great esoteric knowledge that is is uh, discovered, and then I think it fades as we go through our different times. And I think it, it ebbs and flows like like the tides, you know, in, into the light sure. and into the dark. Let's go to our wild card line. Brendan's with us in Austin, Texas. Hey, Brendan, welcome. Hey, thanks, guys. I loved everything that you guys were just saying, especially about uh, about the experience based spirituality. That's amazing. Thank you. I had a near death experience. I got shuffled around to different realms and worlds. I had asked for the Grim Reaper to come and take me. I just didn't want to be like in a coma. I thought it would be in a coma forever, but so I was asking for death and the angel of death came or Grim Reaper or whatever. And eventually I got to these endless gears and it was like the whole universe was just a bunch of gears turning. And then I got brought to a massive wall and I was never allowed to pass the wall. But the role of shamanism is kind of like being a grim reaper that you're like helping other people pass on. I'm really big into shamanism after all of my near-death experiences, but I've struggled with that experience and understanding everything that happened because you get shown so much. And I was wondering, Matthew, the concept of the grim reaper or angel of death and shamanism, and have you ever heard of any experiences with gears or cogs for the inner workings of the universe? Well, I've had my own personal direct experiences working with ayahuasca, and I've worked with it a lot over the course of 25 years. Uh, I've done 13 10-day shamanic plant dietas with ayahuasca. That's pretty intense. So I've seen things that go beyond um, normal comprehension, for lack of better words, because I've been stretching my psyche in, in every which way that I can. And one of the things I've learned, if nothing else, is that death is bigger than all of us. And it has to do with acceptance. And the more you go along the path and the more you have acceptance for forces that are way bigger than you, I think you get more, a, a, a greater download, for lack of better words. And the more that you learn, the more there is a responsibility for what you learn. In shamanism, it's called uh, the power path. And every time you break through to a new level, you have a whole new set of problems and you have a whole new set of uh things you have to deal with and greater responsibilities and the greater the consequences if you mess up. Nobody, in my humble opinion, nobody ever, if somebody tells you they're enlightened, I think you should run the other way. I don't think anybody ever gets enlightened. I think we get lighter and more and smarter and know more, but it's infinite. Nobody has arrived, and one of my little pet peeves is what I call guruitis, because people have an experience and they suddenly see things that they hadn't seen before, and then suddenly they're an expert and they're a guru, and people will follow them. Yeah. Um, but it, it really is infinite, and you have to accept that there are greater, greater forces far bigger than us. And once you accept that, I think you, you gain a greater uh, spiritual freedom, for lack of better words. Next up, Bill. First-time caller, Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello, Bill. Go ahead. Uh, I, yes, uh, just to share a story with you. Uh, my dad died. Oh, this is many years ago now. I haven't thought about it in a long time. Uh, he had cancer. Big, rugged guy. Weighed 280. Wow. Uh, they gave him a couple of weeks to live, and he lived for a year. And he used to read. Uh, I used to race horses. He used to like to keep my name in the newspaper. And it, we, he never wanted me to come see him. He wanted me to race him when he enjoyed that. But anyways, I, I knew it was the right day. And uh, the doctor called me. He was having a rough day. They, they dropped him. They were moving him, and they dropped him. And, but when I got to the hospital, he was already unconscious. But he was aware. He was alive. He still. But uh, finally, he took a deep breath, passed away. They came in, they, they pronounced him dead, and I was mad at myself because I didn't go earlier, and, and, and I should have been there. And I had my head on the corner of the bed, and it was just myself. Everybody else had cleared out, the doctor left. So it was about 45 minutes later, and uh, I was fretting because I left my horses, but you, you, you can't just leave them, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, I'm going to get in trouble. I, I need to call somebody. And I heard this voice inside my head in a whisper and said, it doesn't matter. Mm. And when I looked up, I saw the two fingers pulling the sheet down from over his head, mm. on, on, under his body. And, and of course, you're not seeing this. I thought I was dreaming. I was so tired. I thought I fell asleep. And he pulled the top. He 
pulled the sheet down with his fingertips. And and all, all this time he had jaundice and, and his eyes were getting yellowish. Mm. I never saw his eyes that bright. And he smiled and, and blew myself and my brother a kiss. And I didn't even say anything to wow. my brother because I thought I was dreaming. But, but he was dead, right, Bill? He was pronounced dead, yes, by the doctor. And then it was a long time after that of cold. I had my hand up on his uh, ankle, under, and he was, and he was just laying, laying there. And he woke up, and I never saw his eyes that clear or that happy ever. Now, when you say he woke up, did they misdiagnose him? Nobody was there. It was just me and my brother, and my brother was leaning against the wall. But I mean, was he? And did he come back from the dead? He came back from the dead. There's no doubt in my mind. That's an amazing story. We're going to take a quick break here and come back and wrap things up with Matthew Palomary. Amazing story. And welcome back, Matthew Palomari with us and our final segment here. Matthew, that was a great story about that father in the hospital, wasn't it? That's the stuff I live for, you know. I named my new short story question The Thinning Veil because that's the kind of strange things that, yep. that go beyond comprehension, you know. Back to the phones, Joe, Long Island, New York, east of the Rockies. Hey, Joe. Yeah, hi, Matthew. I have two yeah. questions, second on the jungles. Uh, but when it comes to, okay, if you meditate, for example, in general, they say you get that alpha wave experience where you can concentrate better. Uh, but the idea of more vivid thinking or a higher, uh, a more vivid imagination to me seems like for a given individual, like what's the baseline for that? That's kind of an imprecise thing to me uh, in terms of goal setting. It would probably be better to have a more vivid imagination for writing and things like that and for decisions. But uh, how do you orchestrate that or even rate that? And then on the uh, jungle uh, idea, I'm just curious if you spent time in Peru specifically and if you encountered any snakes or, or crazy birds on your trails. Huh, it's funny you should say that. Um, let's see, there's, there's, there's kind of a two-part question here. Well, let me say the last time I was on the jungle in October, George, you're going to love this. <laughs> I was reading, I'm a big fan of Gurdjieff, who's a Russian mystic. And I was reading Gurdjieff, it was a bio, uh, autobiography, and he talked about his father used to put snakes and rats in his bed in order to teach him how not to, to freak out oh, under stress. Geez, what a horrible to do. So I read this, and then I put the book down, my first night in my tombo, and I go over to my mosquito net where I'm going to sleep, and I saw this wriggling piece of rope, and I looked, and it was a snake in my bed, <laughs> and it was getting away. So it got away. Now, four nights later, we were in the big maloka doing ceremony. We're getting ready, and we're starting to drink the ayahuasca, and somebody points and says, there's a snake up there. And we looked up, and there was a deadly poisonous snake hanging from Just the top of the maloka. Just looking at you. Yeah. So we had to finish drinking our dose, then we had to go outside and wait for the helpers to come and chase the snake off. And, and we're starting to get under the influence of the plant medicine really strongly waiting for the snake. So it really started off in a bumpy way. But it's funny to mention snakes like that because that was my most recent experiences. That was my 13th time doing that. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is, in the end, one of my favorite expressions is radical subjectivity. Because in the end, people can read a gazillion books. They can do a gazillion different things. But all we really have is our own personal experience to go by, period. And it's this radical subjectivity that uh, shamanism really explores very deeply so that you go through all these crazy psychological experiences and then when you're in your regular everyday life and you're in a stressful situation, you can handle it because you've already been through crazier stuff in, in your mind and in your experience. But in the end, and it's one of the definitions of shamanism, is, is and I said this before, is direct experience, direct subjective experience. That's all we really have. Next up, let's go to Cornelius in Alexandria, Louisiana on the wild card line. Hello there, Cornelius. Hey there, George and Matt. I want to salute you, the Navy man, George. And Matt, the Air Force man, and me, I was military police. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you for your service. All the veterans in the audience, and happy and blessed 4th of July coming up. Yes, George, sir. I want to give a quick 
Uh, shout out, Cuomo's going to have that whistleblower on the UFO stuff tomorrow at 7 o'clock Central Time on News Nation. So please watch News Nation. They've been breaking all the stories, and they've been bringing up George Knapp and Nick Pope. That's always on our show, too. Um, George, this guy, Matthew, is hitting it right on the spot. Yep. Matthew, they call me the God Guns of Gold Man, the Bible Bullets and Beans Man. And um, my question for you, I believe we're in the end times, according to the Bible and stuff. And I think we have two to five to ten years left. And you were talking about artificial intelligence and you were in computers and stuff. And I was, too, at Louisiana Tech when they had the old punch card system. I hated that. Oh, yeah. so I went into law enforcement and stuff. But do you see the mark of the beast coming or anything like that? God bless you, George, and God bless Coast to Coast AM. Well, thank, thank you for the plug, first off. Um, You're not an end times guy, are you? No, I'm not. Um, to me, everything goes in cycles. And in, in shamanism, everything is circular. I mean, even the, the maloka that we do the ceremonies in is circular. And, and uh, you know, even you think about the passage of a year in time through all the seasons and all that, everything is circular. So I was saying before about how there's light and dark, light and dark cycles, and everything keeps going. And I think it just keeps going back and forth, swinging like a pendulum. Next up, let's go west of the Rockies. Kurt in Oregon, welcome to the show. Hey, Kurt, go ahead. Hi, George. Hi, hello there. <laughs> Hi there. Um, I wanted to uh, ask your guest, you know, things, you, you can see today that things are quite, there's a lot of evil out there today. I've never seen evil like this on the planet before. It's crazy. Um, and there's things going on. It's just it boggles the imagination. Um, where do you think, in your opinion, where's this all going? Um, you know, you, you, you get like the, uh, um, the World Economic Forum, uh, uh, no, um, excuse me, uh, Harari and Schwab say that AI, and you seem to know something about AI, so that's what I want to ask. Um, they say that with AI, they're, that they're going to use it in 10 years to uh, lock down humanity and to, um, and to create peace, but there'll be AI robots that will run everything. There will be hardly any humans. And that's one thing I wanted to ask you. Um, and then I have one quick question, um, just to follow up to that is, you know, maybe God is the God part of the brain. Maybe it's just our perception. Matthew Alper says it could just be a part of our brain. It's just a, um, a per our perception of God. We're programmed to believe in God. And I'll leave it there and I'll listen off the air. Thank you, George. Okay, take that one first, Matthew. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a big one. Um, I think we're all connected, and there's a piece of divinity in every single one of us. And in shamanism, they don't necessarily, I mean, there's, there's evil, but they don't necessarily see things as good and evil. They see it as degrees of awareness. So the more you are aware of things, the more you are conscious of things, the more you can see things that you may not have seen before because you're not going to be all caught up in it. There, there, there can be an embodiment, so to speak, of, I don't know if embodiment's the right word, but you think of the, the evils in the world, you think of the Jeffrey Dahmers and all the horrible serial killers and even the things that is all the horror show that's going on in Ukraine and all that. But we're all part of it and we're all connected. And I think that in the end, things are going to balance out. And the more out of a balance we go on one side, the more we're going to have to swing back hard the other way, which is what's happening with the environment. And I also believe that the environment is a reflection of what's going on inside of us. And what about artificial intelligence? I think it... I think people give it too much credit. Um, somebody did a whole thing on me on the chat GPT, and it was saying things like I was born and went to school in New York, which is not true. It said some very nice things about me. But again, to me, it's an extension of being human, and it does things, and it has algorithms that can answer questions. But I don't believe, me personally, that it has its own innate intelligence. It's just a great mimic, and that's what it tries to do. There's, you know, there's the whole idea of the Turing test, and can it be uh, proven, you know, that it has consciousness or not? And in my own personal humble opinion and experience, I don't believe it can have its own innate intelligence. It's just a, like a clone or a copy. That's that's my two cents with my experience. Wildcard line, Chris in Milwaukee. Hey, Chris, go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Sure. I was uh, just calling because I so about like your use of uh, MTOs and ayahuasca, et cetera. So when I was in the dinner, I met a buddy of mine, uh, legal substance, and uh, we um, when we smoked the sage. We both had a combined, uh, I guess, uh, hallucination, vision, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. in which we saw a very tall gray alien pulling up a, uh, who can only be described as like a grid of the universe, and looked at both of us and said, are you guys going to help? 
Interesting take. You're breaking up a little bit. Uh, yeah, I missed a bit Chris, of that. But uh, oh, under oh, ayahuasca, will, will you have these weird visions? Yeah, that's um, that's a good point, George. I've had experiences, and I, one of the things when ayahuasca was first developed or sort of discovered by Western world, and it was like 1865 by an Englishman by the name of Richard Spruce, and he called the active component telepathy, and that was one of the things that hooked me when I read that. I was like, I got, I got to, I got to try that. I got to know what that is. But I've had experience and visions in ayahuasca and when we're going to integrate the following day and I'll get ready to say what I saw and somebody else will speak and they'll they will say that they saw exactly the same thing that I saw and one of the fascinating things about ayahuasca is that there is an agreed upon psychological landscape there there's a place that's called the crystal castles and it doesn't matter you can be in New York City you can be in the jungle you can be in Canada and you'll see the same archetypal symbols primarily jaguars and condors and and other animals hmm. and you'll see them no matter where you are and so it's an agreed upon psychological map that people who have had a lot of experiences will see and many people often have the same experience at the same time and have the same kind of a vision and that's one of the things that fascinates me about it is the owl very prevalent when you drink that the owl yeah yeah owl is very powerful owls wisdom and death um, and I've had some major owl experiences, and there and there there's a fair amount of owls in the jungle too. But the the primary ones, primary are snakes and jaguars and condors. But there are other ones. There there's owls. I'm big with hummingbirds. Um, each one has its own individual personality. Let's go to Norman St. Louis. Hello, Norman. Go ahead. Hey, great show again. Because uh, that was what asked your guest if uh, he was completely off the grid. And what he thinks of, uh, you know, the CBDC uh, bill coming through and uh, Bill Gates and this fake food uh, lab food. And uh, as far as, like, living off the grid, that there's a guest you have on named Dane Winnington, and I listen yeah. to him every week. But he's got a podcast about um, how they're spraying chemicals up in the air, and it's all supposedly the sun so for the global warming but it's all dissipating and falling to the earth and it's aluminum and barium and strontium and graphene yep. it's all getting in the yeah. soil and, and they've, been, they've been doing that for years what do you think of the cbd oil i think there are different parts of the plant that could be used in different ways and it's getting to be legal in different places and some people swear by it and if it works for them then it works for them i you know for me i've worked with not only with ayahuasca but i've worked with dozens of other plants in the jungle in different ways and they can all have different effects. To me, the plants have been around longer than we have. They're our friends, and then there are some inside jokes that maybe the plants are cultivating us, right? Um, you never know. Yeah, exactly, right? Who's to say? There have been a lot of experiments on plants. They're pretty intelligent. Yeah. I have a whole chapter in my new book on, on that uh, coming up about plant, plant consciousness. Yeah, and when is that book to be published? It'll probably be early next year because I want to stagger the, if I do, I was writing The Thinning Veil, the short story collection, and this consciousness one at the same time. So I don't want to overdo it. So probably right after the first of the year, that one will come out. All right, well, we'll plan on getting you back in. Awesome, I appreciate that. Now tell folks where they can get all your books. All of my books can be found on Amazon. I also have um, Mystic Inc. Publishing website, M-Y-S-T-I-C-I-N-K, P-U-B-L-I-S-H-I-N-G.com. And then if they go to my website, they can they can find it also. Um, and as I mentioned, my 19th book just came out, and the one we're talking about right now, due out early next year, will be my 20th book. And you'll just keep going and going and going, won't you? Can't help myself, George. I don't blame you, Matthew. Just keep doing it. Stay healthy and keep doing it. And health's good. Thank you. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I don't think I've ever been healthier. Uh, I'm in a happy place. Things are good. I'm taking care of myself. I'm eating right. Good for you. And your website is your name. We've got that linked up for you at coasttocoastam.com. Thank you, Matt. We'll keep in touch, all right? Thank you so much for having me on again, George. I always enjoy talking to you. All right. Matthew Palomari.